This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yes. Hello. Welcome back. It's me, your host, Kevin Pollack. Well, so thank you so much uh, for tuning in to part one of the David Mullen chat. He is um, uh, just a delight and a a, a nutty genius and uh, uh, one of those extraordinary talents who, who thrives without bravado or ego, which is so rare for an artist. Um, as you could imagine. Uh, so, uh, welcome back to my Mrs. Maisel pod. This is Kevin Pollack. As I mentioned, um, uh, let's see, episode 37. No, 36. Sorry. Uh, we'll continue our conversation, David and I. It will start, uh, seemingly, uh, in the middle because, well, it is, uh, otherwise known as awkward or abruptly. And we'll then go on to discuss, um, you know, remaining seasons and and certain episodes and moments as we did in part one. And then later on, of course, I'll read one of your emails. Thanks for writing in to my Mrs. Maisel at gmail.com. This this has been a, a, a really great journey. We've got some great episodes coming up. Um, I've been told by the mothership, quote unquote, we need to get the numbers up. So I don't know why I'm passing that along to you with all of its, uh, natural born humility for me. Um, but, uh, you know what? I mean, I don't want to pressure anybody. I don't want to feel the pressure. Those who listen to this podcast love it. And the rest of the world doesn't know about it. So if we want to uh, let the other billions of people know, that's on us. Um, So I ask for your support. Uh, I'm going to be posting some more videos on the socials to see if I can't rally some troops. It's really about awareness, right? Because every time I'm stopped on the street by someone who loves the series... And I tell them, oh, did you know I'm doing a podcast? They have no idea. None. And they're startled and instantly interested. Where do I get that? How do I get that? So it's just a constant reminder for me 
that people don't know about the podcast. And by people, I don't mean you. You clearly know. I mean all the people that you and I have ever met. And then the other billions. So there's no advertising for these kinds of things uh, like in uh, um, traditional media, I believe it's still called. So it's kind of the word of mouth thing. And, you know, I, I, uh, I can't take on any more responsibility. And so I'm not, I feel weird asking you to. Um, but I'm, I'm oversharing because uh, you are among the group of, of uh, loyal listeners. And I wanted to thank you, let you know that I'm uh, receiving an SOS from the mothership. And, um, and that's it. That's it. Uh, let's get to part two with David Mullen. Again, I've got some great episodes coming up. I'm unbelievably excited. Jane Lynch is coming up. Um, Jason Alexander is coming up. Um, Patton Oswalt. I'm starting to get conversations with people I run into who I know who were not a part of the show but love it and want to come on and talk about a favorite episode. I've got a three-parter with Jane Lynch coming up. Oh, we talked for a couple of hours. It was glorious. Um, she's just extraordinary. So, yeah, so a lot of uh, excitement coming up. Our, our world-class, world-renowned Steadicam operator, Jim McConkie. Yeah, yeah, we, we go on a bit of a dive ourselves. And lots more. Uh, I'll threaten you uh, in later episodes with other upcoming guests. So here now, uh, part two with Dr. David Mullen, multi-Emmy Award-winning cinematographer for my, well, not my, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Enjoy. And do you love that? It seems to me those challenges. When I, when I do figure it out, I love it. If I can't figure out, it's it's. Uh, I, I run. Amy and Dan push me to the limits of what's possible, you know, in terms yeah. of camera movements. And sometimes I feel frustrated that I can't quite deliver a hundred percent of what they want because it starts. Any to of those? Well, come to mind? no. It's just that um, we run into. Uh, physics basically you know i keep trying right. to tell dan and amy that um the camera has mass and weight and therefore the faster it moves the more inertia it has the more momentum it has and the harder it is to stop it so so the speed in which amy wants to fly a camera around sometimes i think well we could certainly fly it that fast but we can't stop it on a dime then because it's it's got energy at that point and it's very hard to to break those laws of newtonian physics you know uh, we had a number of technocrane and, and cable cam shots where we tried to find the fastest one on the market. And what I discovered on in all those cases was the dealer will say, yeah, this camera can go up to 35 miles an hour. It's used to follow skiers up a mountain and during the Olympics. I go, great, that's exactly what we need. Well, I find out that it takes, you know, 30 seconds to get up to 35 miles an hour, but the shot is only 40 seconds long. So we only get up to speed before the time we get up to speed, the shot's over. Or our technocrane, this is the fastest technocrane on the market. But we needed to go from zero to 60, essentially, within two or three seconds, because the shot's only 
so long. And that's the problem is these devices can go fast, but they need a ramp up time, which we don't have on our show. We were fast from the start of the shot. Um, so I don't like forcing Dan and Amy to, to sort of bend to what the camera can do. Um, but occasionally they've, they've had to, you know, work out some, some change to accommodate. Like when we switch from Movi to Technocrine, we disconnect, there always has to be a moment where nothing's, where the camera stops moving. It's very, it's, it can be a very short moment, particularly if your camera is going forward on the Technocrine and someone grabs it and disconnects and keeps going forward, that pause might be a millisecond, you know, it's harder the other way when you're backing up and then you attach it to the crane and then the crane keeps going. You, you know, matters how fast you do that connect and hook up a safety cable. There's always going to be a kind of, you know, hanging moment. So we try to get uh, Dan or Amy to, to choreograph the shot so that that pause happens naturally. You know, yeah. we had to do that double technocrane disconnect shot. We've done it twice on the show where we had two technocranes and we disconnected and reconnected the camera. We did it at the Fontainebleau Hotel in season three. When we first arrive in the outside, we fly over the fountains of the Fontainebleau, yes. disconnect, follow Susie and Midge into the Fontainebleau lobby, reconnect to a second crane, fly up to the chandelier height, look down on Midge, float back down again like a helicopter move, disconnect a second time, go up to the counter of the Fontainebleau. Then the second time we did it was season five when Susie confronts uh, Mike Carr in the backstage of, of the Gordon Ford show, where we pan with Susie, we crane up to the second floor, she meets Mike, we crane across the second floor, bullpen, we go over the rail, we disconnect, we walk backwards on a movie as we follow them down a hall, through another set of doors, and then reconnect to a second crane as they go down the staircase from the second floor of the office to the ground floor, which then won't point that shot was supposed to be over but after we rehearsed it in a rehearsal day and managed to make it work amy said great you managed to make that work can we just keep going and, and go up <laughs> the next scene where everyone into the uh gordon ford um you know Station. studio where everyone arrives which was another two minute sequence and i i told amy yeah it's certainly possible but we need another movie operator because Nick Nas, who was operating the movie on the second floor, is stuck on the second floor of the office set. She can't get down. So we had to hire another operator to come in and just take the movie and continue the shot uh, for the last section of it. So, um, but the, hiring another uh, expert is not going to slow Amy down. <laughs> if, that, if that's your only reason why we couldn't do what well, she was. Yeah, that's the solution and, and that's uh, doable. Um, usually these very complicated ones you know we have advanced warning of it's not like we can win yeah. that on the day and amy knows that sometimes um these shots are are tricky enough that she would like to see a rehearsal before the shooting day as a sort of proof of concept she doesn't want to do it on the day of and find it doesn't work or something like that so so we'll yeah. have a planned in a rehearsal day in advance uh the whole uso sequence uh it starts outside in the airfield follows the jeep gets out of the Jeep and follows Midge up on stage and then down the stage. Uh, and then she drives off in a Jeep. That one was luckily in the first episode of the season three. So we had more prep than normal because we were prepping the whole season at, the, at that point. And we were able to rehearse that first out in the parking lot at Steiner and then on location. 
and then on the shooting day. So we had a lot of uh, runs at it, basically. Massive stage, countless singers, dozens of dancers, a couple of actual airplanes, and 980, I think we set our Guinness record of extras in period garb. Yeah, it was uh, something. That was one of those scenes where, you know, Amy says it's a wonder, but they're talking in a Jeep. So the question was, how do we cover the dialogue in the Jeep? Um, do we attach the camera to the Jeep? I was, I think Jim McConkie said, well, let's build a rig on the Jeep and put the movie on it. And then when it pulls up, we can disconnect and walk backwards with them. And I, I said, well, there's the two problems with that. One is the shot then will start out immediately in a two shot. We can't start wide and end up in a two shot. The second is the moment you disconnect, you're walking backwards. So that whole rig on the hood of the Jeep is in the shot and visual effects not only have to paint that out, but if it crosses anyone's body, which is very likely, the visual effects will say, we can't do it. It can't it can't momentarily erase part of Midge or Susie and have them somehow CGI build that back in. So I said, that's not gonna work. So the next option was either kind of a Russian arm, which is a, an SUV with a crane on it, and put a movie magnet mount to it, which I've never heard done before, but it seemed possible. Uh huh. But then we would have to do hide the Russian arm truck and arm and crane somehow in these sounds into the hangar as we backed up. So then Charlie Sharon, I think, suggested we get uh, just a what they call a grip trick, such as an electric golf cart, which they make of various sizes and put Jim on a steady cam on the golf cart and get two precision stunt drivers, one on the Jeep and one on the grip tricks. So that essentially we meet each other on the tarmac and ride in parallel uh, tight as we can to hold a raking two shot for like a page of dialogue, which scared me because it's very, we tried that once on the road with a Russian arm when Midge and, and Benjamin are driving to the Catskills. We tried cover yeah. dialogue scene and it's very hard for two vehicles going down a road to maintain an exact distance all the time when they're not actually attached to each other. But we were able to do that in this case. So it worked out. But but those two vehicles were driving within four inches of each other for like a page of dialogue. That's just to hold that raking two shot. It was all the all the Jeep on the tarmac. Yeah, it starts out wide. We essentially drove our camera grip tricks backwards because we wanted to meet the Jeep coming at us. So we're going backwards as they're coming forwards. And the moment we we end up side by side, the grip chicks through it throws itself into forward and starts driving forward and parallels the uh the Jeep uh until it pulls up pulls up to a stop. And then it it lands a little wider. And then I asked the art department to give me something to hide the grip tricks in once we back up with the movie. So they built a army tent in the hangar as right. dressing. So the grip tricks could then quickly drive into that tent and the flap would drop and uh, we wouldn't see it when we backed up. So, but that was all, you know, everyone, every department talking about the issues and me working with Anthony Capello, our focus puller, because I had a major F-stop change. You know, I went from full sunlight to full interior. So I went from almost stopped down to F811 to wide open F2 by the end of the shot. So I went through several stops uh, on the lens to change exposure. Um, and at first I, I didn't want to do it with the F stop because when you do that, the depth of field changes, you start up with a lot of deep focus. And as you open up wider and wider, you get shallow focus. Uh, 
I wanted to maintain the same focus, but the only way to do that is to use a device they call a, a double polarizer. Essentially, it's a variable polarizer or ND filter. So as you rotate the filter, it makes the image brighter or darker. So I would adjust the filter as I backed up the camera. So I did a test with Anthony out in the sound stages. I just panned from the bright sunshine into the dark sound stage back and forth. And I tried doing that with a with a variable ND filter and it couldn't make it work. It's it's just not fine-tuned enough. As soon as you rotate the filter, yeah. it changes so quickly. And I said, I'm gonna screw up this take. You know, like I can't, this shot's gonna be hard enough if I say I gotta go again because I messed up on the stop change. Yeah. So I, I, Anthony, I went back to using the f-stop ring, which is a lot more fluid. But I had to live with the, uh, the depth of field shift. But that's just well. I talked to a lot of actors on this podcast about their fear of ruining a oneer. Yeah. And it turns out we all live in that fear. And so it's nice to hear that you're in that. Yeah. That well, some of our oneers have elaborate lighting cues. So of course, my uh, poor dimmer board operator. Uh, he's sweating bullets too because if he screws up a cue, you know, then we have to go back to one or something like yeah. that. So, um, yeah, dare I say, a missed opportunity with a behind-the-scenes camera, at least for that season opener. Someone should have thought to such an elaborate move like that, or the oneer over the pool in Miami. Yeah, um, we have a few be behind the scenes videos of the rehearsals of, of that. So both both of those, not not all the way through. You know, like someone shot some video of the Jeep. Um, they attached a camera to the Jeep, the grip trick. So we have we have the whole ah. pull up and everything. But his moment the grip trick drives into the tent and hides that that camera angle is dead. So there's nothing yeah. and that covers the second half of that move as Jim goes up on the stage, other than the shot itself. Um, so occasionally we get some cool behind the scenes iPhone video of some of these half, at least half the shot. It's, it's very hard with these wonders. He goes through several rooms to yeah. wait for a video operator to document it, you know, because he, he'll get a third of the way and then he's, he's cut out. He's suddenly, you know, stuck somewhere. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's interesting. Uh, I want to go back a little bit, talk about, um, from Paris to the Catskills all in, in season two, um, the Catskills for the actors I've spoken to was like um, uh, an away game for a traveling sports team where, where, where everyone's on the road together. It's so rare within the confines of a, a an ongoing season. Um, and and what so I'm curious what your sense of the adventure that took us to the Scott family resort, a.k.a. the Steiner Resort. Yeah, it's it reminded me of, of a feature film where you went on location, you know, because we're all yeah. crews in one hotel. So, you know, it didn't happen very often in five seasons where we even, you know, the only other time we went to that airfield for that that USO number, we stayed two nights out there, I right. think, or a couple nights. But other than that, uh, there's not many times we've all been in one hotel. You know, I guess Miami is the other time. Um but in Paris, we were all scattered among different little hotels. So we we didn't really hang out on our free time the way we did uh, in in Binghamton, uh, New York, um, for the Catskill sequence. That was a lot of fun. Every night we'd get back from the Scott family resort and be in the bar all 
joking and talking and having a good time. Um, so it was, it is a bonding kind of experience, especially when you, you know, it's one thing to do that in Paris where of course, as soon as you have free time, you just, you start going off on your own and, and exploring. Whereas, you know, in Binghamton, New York, you know, I did a lot of walking around taking photos of the city, but otherwise most people, you know, were fairly bored and, and hung out at the hotel basically while we were there. Um, but it was nice. It was summer, you know, it was, a uh, it was a very pretty location. Uh, Gorgeous. Yeah. And the um, Abe Weissman up for calisthenics, uh, yeah. dusk for dawn or yeah dusk it was yeah dusk for dawn for dusk yeah i think so i yeah, no, I, I think, I think it take... was i think it was uh we shot twilight or sunset for dawn yeah right and right. we did that in uh i'm pretty sure i could be wrong it could have been a morning shot but i'm, I'm pretty sure it was an afternoon shot that was actually at uh harriman state park there's a um boy scout camp that we ah. we use it has a lake and we use that location for the um the workers of the Catskill Resort you know where Susie stays in that log cabin with with the right. friends and there's an old uh, sort of almost abandoned Boy Scout camp there a bunch of log cabins on the lake and so we use that for the workers um where they stayed and where Susie gets lost and found uh by the search party yeah. and uh all that stuff that was in Harriman State Park, but because it has a lake and a dock, um, we scheduled the Abe Calisthenics scene for that lake rather than uh, Lake Okwaga and and at the Scott Family Resort. Um, right. So, you know, it was okay. we were, I I was worried that I wouldn't have enough time to shoot that sequence at Magic Hour, but it was actually of sort of overcast that afternoon, so I hadn't extended overcast magic hour look so i was able to get more shots in um yeah and everyone remembers when the weissmans show up at their cabin and you're set yeah. what across across the way for this yeah i recently posted a picture on instagram of that shot because i wanted to see the we needed to see the whole house yeah all two floors of it which put the camera right on the edge of the lake in the water um, but I didn't want to use a really wide angle lens because then the lines of the house will get distorted. It gets kind of bent. And so I backed the camera up on the dock. There was a little tiny canoe dock in front of the house. And I, so we backed the camera on the end of the dock and I put a nice lens on and then the dock collapsed under the weight of our camera. So we, 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 luckily the water is only two feet deep there. So it's not like, uh, we were going to drown or anything, but we instantly had to take down the whole camera and put it back on the shore uh and i had to use a wider angle lens than i wanted to but that was the only way to get that shot and and it's it's slightly tighter than i wanted to because we were closer to the building than i than i really wanted. right in retrospect now that i remember the water is only two feet deep i probably should have just put the tripod on the water um <laughs> backed up the camera again the, the trouble when you and i've had this happen to me before um in Montana, I did a movie called North Fork where I put the camera on the edge of a lake. Even the, the water motion starts to eat away the ground underneath the tripod. So after five or 10 minutes, the camera often pitches over because the ground is given away. So it's always a little bit tricky to put sticks in, in underwater on a, on a lake with, with waves going. So, 
but I, I think I could have gotten away with it. Um, but my fear of that kind of forced me to stick it, keep it on the dry land, basically. Good to know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, you know, for me, the, the, there are so many great memories, but in terms of my participation in the Catskills, it was driving through the woods up to the front of the place, that one or where we unload the car, mm -hmm. uh, just because you get so used to power steering that when you're behind the wheel of a, yeah, what almost feels like you're on a, on a sailing yacht spinning around the yeah. wheel. It's so uh, unwielding. Um, but yeah, so, so, so many of those outdoor shots um, you're, you're obviously using um, natural light, but. Yeah, that was, those scenes were really difficult for me because um, normally the trouble when you film under trees is that, not yeah. you get patches of bright sun and deep shade, but it shifts throughout the day. So, you know, you do the master, let's say, and you're you're in a patch of bright sun, but by take three, you're in one of you, you know, surely is under a, a tree branch shadow. And by the coverage, it's completely moved somewhere else. So normally you would do something like a silk or something to soften the sun, but there's no way with these pine trees to, to get a crane and a silk. Also, the there was just that land was not conducive to bringing in condors nope. and things. So there wasn't a flat surface. It wasn't flat, three, yeah. three miles. Yeah. It was the hardest thing for me was the, um, the fireworks scene at night because I had to somehow light the lake and the front lawn and the house with a fireworks display gag without being able to bring in any cranes or anything. Uh, we had talked about bringing a lighting boat, you know, like a barge to put the lights on the water. Um, but it turned out the cost of driving a boat to upstate New York and, and then somehow getting it onto the lake uh, was ridiculous. And so I ended up taking some scissor lifts and driving them again right to the edge of the water on dry land and raising them up. So those firework lights, which should have been further away, were only like six feet from the first row of picnic goers, you know, but that was just no, there was no space that that ground was so short and uneven, uh, the hilliness of it, and then the yeah. So it was it was very difficult. And so the the day stuff that that scene with you, and and uh, Carol uh, Carolyn, and then the um, the scene where Midge gets picked up by Benjamin before they go riding in the city. Yeah, those two scenes in front of the house were quite uh, difficult. And I think there's a scene where where Abe arrives too with the family um that's right yeah so all those arrival scenes or departure scenes from that front of that house was very very difficult because and how much is is um corrected in post well the look is is sort of baked into the shooting i don't i try to shoot so that the color correction is minimal you know i try to get everything yeah. on camera but those are situations where i need a little help you know, yeah. um, in post, uh, basically taking all the information that the camera can record and trying to pull up some detail in the shadows so that I can, you know, so it's not so harsh looking. Yeah. Basically. So, uh, yeah, I was trying to think, go through and try to find some spots where effects were used. Yeah, we've, we've uh, used effects sometimes to paint out lights that I couldn't, you know, sure. uh, get out of the shot or, um, 
those sort of fixes, or we've had to change views out windows and and things like that. Um, I think the the one of the trickiest things that Leslie had to do for me was I I constantly have this problem in New York is that the length of a city block is such that the tallest condor, which is the crane we put lights on, is not tall enough to be above the frame line. If you park a, the biggest condor they make is 125 foot. If you put a 125 foot condor at the end of a city block in New York and you take a top stick with a light on it, at the other end of the block, if the camera gets backs up on a steady cam, the other end of the block on a typical 24, 27 mil lens, that light's in the shot. Yeah. So there's nothing beyond that. You have to start getting into construction cranes. And the bigger the crane gets for the light, the bigger the base is to make it stable, which then instead of taking up a curb lane, it takes up half the street or it takes up the entire street and you don't get a permit for that. So then you start getting into, well, now I need to bring my lights halfway down the block, like on a rooftop, but then right. I can't get permission to get on mid block on someone's rooftop to put a light or a balcony or, or fire escape. Um, so every time we do those night scenes, I'm always dealing with locations like, do, can I get up to that balcony? Can I get in that guy's window with a light? I need somewhere halfway down the block to, to light the, the, the near part of the street or else um, I'm going to see the lights in the frame. So we had this idea, uh, this scene in an episode, I think it's the end of, ep, end of season one, I think. Uh, Joel gets into a fight outside yeah. the gaslight after some guy taunts Midge. He yeah. picks a fight with the guy in the street. Um I put a light on a scissor lift just halfway down the block. So it would be high enough in theory to get out of the frame, but now the scissor lift is in the shot. So I asked Leslie, can you paint out the scissor lift? We'll park a car in front of the base. Yeah. It's by a tree. Um, hopefully you can disguise it or whatever. Uh, she said, okay, fine. Well, we did this fight scene on a movie. And at some point when Joel gets knocked to the ground, the movie drops to the ground with them. And so now it's like at asphalt level looking up in the sky. Uh -oh. It's looking straight into my light at the top yeah. of the scissor lift. This big light right in the frame for a moment. Um, so Leslie turned it into a full moon. So if you watch that sequence and Joel hits the ground and the camera looks up, you see a moon in the sky above the trees. That's my actually my light um, Leslie erased and turned into a moon, which was very clever, I thought. Uh, Very clever indeed. Yeah. Um, the end of season two, uh, recreating Steve Allen's Tonight Show mm -hmm. for Luke Kirby, Amy's, and your masterful homage to an actual Lenny Bruce appearance. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the time you spent watching the clip, which is in grainy black and white. Yeah. I I love recreating scenes or styles from old movies. And, you know, the show itself doesn't replicate period photography you know it's it's lit in a modern of course yeah, yeah. Style. but occasionally we'll do a tv studio scene or a tv commercial from the time or that the whole episode with the uh the marathon the telethon um or i do actually have to light the space as if they would have how they would have lit it back in the 50s um and in this particular case uh we were recreating an actual historical video of lenny bruce and i wanted to make it as close as i could to the original. Um, so I looked at that clip very carefully and it was very strange because he's he's lit by two follow spots on, which is not 
they don't often use follow spots on a TV show back then, but but he starts at the piano and he's hit with a spotlight and then the follow spot pans him over to the curtain or something. And then he's hit with a second follow spot. So he's basically crisscross lit with two follow spots. Um, so I, and he has two shadows on the wall and all that. So I wanted to recreate that um, uh, specifically. Um, so yeah, it's just me looking at where the shadows were falling and how the curtain was lit and how he was lit and how the piano was lit. Um, it's a, we get a little tricky thing sometimes because we're cutting from live action to video monitor stuff. Uh, TV back then was all square, you know, it's all four by three and we shoot 16 by nine widescreen. And it sort of was frustrating for Jim McConkie to try to recreate the framing of the original clip, but still make it right. work for widescreen. Yeah, he says, "Why can't we just make it all four three, just like the original show?" And I go, "Because this is not this is color and live action. This is not the show. This is that this footage might show up on a monitor in the background, but for the most part, it's going to be showing uh, live. So we're recreating the lighting and and some of the the camera movement, and the framing, but up to a point because it still has to work for a widescreen image." Yeah. Um, and of course, and then, I can't uh, see what the colors might be. That is black and white, you know. So I, yeah, yeah. Sort of, I guess I could make up anything I want. The, uh, it was interesting to look at some behind the scenes photos of t the Johnny Carson show and other things because when television was black and white, there was no reason to use colored lighting or even colored costumes or sets. They could just paint everything gray if they wanted to. But they had a live audience there, so to some degree. They still tried to create something of a show that looked attractive to the to the audience right. too. So that still worked in black and white. So you could sort of play with color to an extent, knowing that that's not what the viewer at home saw, but the audience, the live audience, would see that. The marathon in particular, you know, we had multicolored curtain uh, that we sort of used yeah. in the Gordon Ford set. Well, and apparently that curtain was used in the Tonight Show. Um, that sort of striped curtain of. of Multicolored, yeah. yeah. Walked through it many times myself. Dare I say, yes. So the the, the Carson one. Um, I, I love watching those old YouTube clips. We did a, we we didn't use it, but we had to have a the script required a Exlax or a laxative commercial with Sophie Lennon to yeah. playing during a scene where Abe and Rose are watching TV. They didn't cut to the commercial, but I shot it, um, and so it just said laxative commercial. So. Just for a lark, I went on YouTube and I said, 1960 X Lax commercial. And what, sure enough, someone had found one and preserved it on YouTube. It was just a guy with holding a box of X Lax yeah. against the, for some reason, a table with a pile of books on it and a chandelier hanging over it. It made no sense whatsoever. <laughs> but, you know, Amy thought it was hilarious and Bill Groom too, that it was just kind of a ridiculous little set wow. created on a, oh. on a TV studio lot. So that's what we did with Sophie Lennon. We put a table with the product and a chandelier behind her head. And yeah, for some reason, I was there that day. I remember sitting in the stands while they shot that for a little bit. Yeah, but they didn't um, use it. They right. played all this, the dialogue on Abe and Rose. Uh, it's a yeah. plane off camera, basically. So, um, Well, this takes us to the massive um, uh, season three of it, which we talked about. But then, so I want to take us to the, there's a casino there's sophie lennon on broadway in season three and miami and the season finale at the apollo yeah 
Yeah, there's a lot. And they burned down the house, too, at the end of season three, Susie's mother's house. So we had to have a burning house uh, sequence, too. Right, right. What what do you want to talk about, first of all, those things? And we're only at season three. Yeah. It is so monstrous. It's one of the takeaways for so many fans of the show is how cinematic it is. And we've all heard Amy and Dan say that from the beginning, Amazon's only note was make it look like a movie. Um, but then you, as a team, uh, creatively from every department, seem to stretch that frame uh in terms of scope in terms of what can be achieved let's challenge ourselves uh to to be bolder yeah uh, so let's start with the the casino which i don't think most people know was not an actual casino right that was a we actually used that exact same room for a when midge performs up the cat skills at some big um lounge uh where Abe is in the audience watching her. Right. That's a, a wedding banquet hall that's in Queens. Queens, yeah. Uh, what is it called? Astoria World or something like that? I don't remember the name of it, but um, it's a it's a big facility with three or four um, banquet halls, essentially, you know, like ballrooms. Um, so we used it in season two for a Catskills uh, restaurant ballroom performance area. Uh, and then we used it for uh, the casino. Um, we had to make it work for two casinos because there was in the script the gaming room um and then there was another area of the casino that had a well there was a there was a casino area that had a small stage space for performing right. and uh and there was a press conference there and some other stuff and then there was a an actual uh banquet hall space where she uh performs in and that was the same room so we had to change that room over at some point um, from the casino gambling hall to the performance space. Uh, our department needed, I think, a week off between those two sections in order to switch the rooms over. Um, but I shot those episodes with Jeff Jura. He was the other DP at the time. And uh, so he did one of the Vegas episodes and I did the other Vegas episode in there. And so we worked on the, you know, it, it's hard to make it feel a banquet hall make it feel like a casino so one of the tricks we did was we put colored fluorescent tubes or led tubes in the rafters that that wrapped the room and they were kind of uh what you call a cabinet light up lighting um recess lighting we put uh rgb tubes in there so we could bathe the ceiling in red light for one room and blue light for the other room so it's the same room but the colors shift by switching the the color of the tubes that we rigged so that it felt like a different space. The other trick we use, very old-fashioned one, is when we did the cat skills there, we had to you put a big green screen in the background to make it look twice as big. Yeah. Um, and uh they didn't want to do that again because they wanted more freedom to move the camera among the tables. So I suggested that we just put mirrors at the back end of the room and make it look twice as long and hopefully the stage end would be so far in the back reflection of the mirror that you wouldn't notice that you're seeing the stage in two directions, essentially. Uh, occasionally you can see the stage and visual effects, I think, painted out some of the reflections, but they're very, very deep for the most part. So, so it's a very old fashioned kind of stage trick, just a big wall of mirrors at the back end of the, of the room. And not to see you and your camera. Right. 
occasionally I'd look at dailies and I'd say, oh, if you look very, if you zoom way in, you actually see the, the crane and the camera there. So, you know, hmm. I have to ask Leslie to, to paint that out. Yeah. At least yeah. it was yeah. easier to paint that out than to build a whole second half of the room in post, you know, with a big green screen covering half the room. It was the issue of partly um, extending the space, but also the number of extras. That's why the first time we did it with green screen, so we could turn right. out the extras. But it's just limiting in terms of camera angles when you start dealing with tiling and camera movement. So by using the mirror, we were much more free to uh, move the camera around as long as we were prepared to erase ourselves out of the distant mirror. Right. Um, and Sophie Lennon on Broadway. Yeah, that was a real, that was the Barrymore Theater, I think, on Broadway. We hired a real Broadway lighting designer to come in and, and light the show uh, as a, as if it were a real, you know, Broadway show. So um, it certainly looked like one. Yeah, I I did a TV show in 2010-11 called Smash. It was two seasons. Uh, and it yeah. the show is about a Broadway musical. So I, for two seasons, I had lots of scenes of people rehearsing on Broadway stages and performing on stages and scenes in the audience and scenes backstage. And and so uh, I have some amount of experience um, with that kind of world uh, and know what to expect with that. And so, and in fact, we use the same Broadway lighting designer from Smash uh, on a lot of uh, Maisel. Um, not for the, he wasn't available for that those episodes he didn't he couldn't do the apollo and the sophie lennon thing so we had another broadway designer who was retired i think uh come back and do those two uh scenes the, the trick with working with a broadway lighting designer is that even if they're an older guy who's been around they are not used to restricting themselves to period lighting instruments and so the sort of rule was if you could see the instrument in the shot it had to be period correct um, I had to, I've had to deal with like when I did the Cuban nightclub sequence. Nowadays, you could have a modern LED stage light, and it can magically shift from red to green to purple to yellow because it just changes the settings inside the the unit. But back then, on a show that when the lights shifted from red to blue, you had to have a light gelled red next to a light gelled blue, or you had a filter wheel that would spin in front of the light and shift it in front of the light. And those are the only two ways you could do color cues back until modern uh, stage lighting. So um, it just, you know, becomes an issue now and then when you see Midge in the wings surrounded by the wing lights, that they all have to be tungsten gel lights and not modern LED lights. Um, so it was sometimes a bit of a tricky situation to work out because they still wanted to light some of the big numbers with modern lights so they could do the, what they're used to doing with cues and sweep, sweeping lights and other things uh, without getting too modern looking in the style. Yeah. Um, oh, I can't brush over the opening of the button club in the downstairs casino. Um, oh, that, yeah. That's all on stage. Yeah. The button club was a set. Um, the, uh, you know, for first season, the third season we saw it in was season four. You, you talk about how big the show got in season three. We went to Miami. We, we were all over. Then COVID hit between seasons three and four. So season right. four was our sort of COVID season. And, yeah. and I think 
Now, I had heard rumors, there was talk originally before COVID that we may have, we go to London or something for a sequence, you know, like we did to Paris. But then once COVID hit, um, everything had to be Manhattan-based and on stages as much as we can. Uh, we had to build the whole um, burlesque theater set, the uh, Wolford, um, on on our stages. And they'd come up with a clever plan because during COVID um, in season four, we were only allowed... I think 25% of normal occupancy or something like that right. in any building. Well, luckily we built all our sets that season in the old ship welding building, or they call it one welding road. That building has a legal capacity of 5,000 people. So, so being restricted to a quarter of 5,000 was still a plenty for an entire crew and to fill a right. theater with 200 extras. Uh, we didn't hit the limit on the restrictions for, for COVID luckily. So, um, but that was uh, season four. But in season, yeah, so season four was when the Button Club was introduced and May was introduced, I think. Um, well, before we get to that, I guess I should ask about um, the season three finale the, at the uh, Apollo, Apollo, yeah. Apollo Theater. Yeah. Right. There we, um, the only issue, we had the, the Broadway lighting designer do the shows. The problem we had there was just that uh, dressing people, you know, we, it's one thing to, to dress 900 servicemen in khaki, you know, it was a big job on Donna's part because she was very particular that I said, well, it's all khaki. This must be easy. Oh no, they changed the design. The army uniforms changed between 1960 and 1960 <laughs> Vietnam era. I go, well, I did not know that. So he was period correct for the first like 250 people in the foreground. But as they got deeper and deeper, they just became sort of generic khaki t-shirts and, things because they were in the far background. Um, but when we get into these Broadway show things, it's it's how many ex not only how many extras could you do you need to fill the seats, but they all have to be dressed to the T, you know, to the nines. They have to be in beautiful dresses and coats and hats. And so it's it's uh, a big job for for Don and her team. And in the case of the Apollo, it holds like 2,500 people and they think they were able to dress 250 right. people or something like that. So we had to tile the same happened with the, you know, Carnegie hall in the end of season four, um, we had to tile the audience in. And so we brought in a remote, a, um, what they call a motion control tracking camera. So we could track Midge from the wings across on the stage, looking out on the audience and, and then tilt up and see all three levels of the Apollo theater full of people with, Basically, we the camera repeated itself, and Leslie moved the audience around the theater until it filled up the whole space. And then, after that, we tried not to see two hundred, you know, twenty five hundred people in the same shot. Yeah, yeah. Establish it and then move on. Yeah, but it was hard because we during these comedy numbers, we want to cut away to reaction shots, and so at some point after. Um, Rachel has done the number a couple of times in different sizes. We turn around and shoot towards the audience. And when you actually have only have in reality, 200 people there, let's say you have three cameras, but you, they have to all zoom in on and that, you know, you can't do that. Cause I see there's an empty row behind that group. You got to tilt down more. You got to go tighter on there. And so that we get yeah. limited on how many cutaways we can do with the crowd because they just, we don't have a full house to, to shoot. People. But for the viewer, once you establish 
that the proscenium, then we, we have our geography. So when you go in tight, yeah. it's interesting what you have to go through to not give away the lack of people, but for the audience, yeah. um, it, it doesn't even cross our mind. Yeah. Anymore. And sometimes we've, we've done tricks where you, you sh at one point, the camera, uh, I think we had one with number, it was a, uh, a dance number where the woman comes out in a red spotlight and the, and then it, it's a, this really fast dance she does. And then it goes into a shy Baldwin number. Um, we wanted to shoot towards the, that dance towards the house, but we didn't have, you know, thousands of extras. So in that case, I just let the house go as dark as possible. And we smoked up the set and I put her in a big, you know, bright, I put, extra blaster lights on the rails and, and floodlights and and follow spots so that when that direction we did a 360 amy wanted to do a 360 move that's why we had this issue where we're on the steady cam at one point we'd see the apollo theater audience not there so i basically uh made the room as dark as i could and then blasted we pointed into many lights as possible so wow. the moment we see into the darkness we were lens flared by all these bright lights so it just becomes a wash of light for a moment um, those lights aren't actually on the dance. You know, that's if you actually shot the dance on that lighting, it'd be floodlit. So yeah. it's a big lighting cue. As soon as the camera's starting to spin around, I'm, I'm queuing up all these extra lights that don't actually do anything other than flare into the lens and, and wash out the lack of, of an audience beyond them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, as we're reaching the end of season three here, I'm realizing that um, I've kept you too long. I'm going to have to bring you back to discuss seasons four and five, if you're willing, because sure. um, there's just so much more to discuss. And I, I don't want to monopolize uh, your entire day and night. Um, yeah. Well, thank you. I hope this was uh, somewhat painless. It's, it's a, a true joy to, to hear from, from your artistry with um, all regard to, the design creation and execution of what marvelous Mrs. Maisel was able to accomplish and, and what it represents for the audience. Mm -hmm. So truly, thank you. Um, shall I presume you're willing to come back? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Good, good, good. Um, all right then uh, for now. Uh, thank you very right. much, David. Have a good and afternoon. Yeah, we'll we'll uh, we'll reconvene as soon as you possibly can. Okay. But uh, thank you for part one. Yes. Oh, I mean, okay. First and foremost, I want to thank David Mullen for spending all that time with me. We had two sessions, as I think you can tell. Um, yeah, just an extraordinary talent an extraordinary inspiration for all of us around him on set. Um, and, and the time that I got to share with him on set, just the two of us talking was so absolutely some of my favorite memories from working on the show. And then to, to be on these two zoom uh, conversations with him and really drill down was something I had not done on set. Um, Cause it always felt a little, I don't know time monopolizing to drill down with such a genius on set when he in fact works way more than I do on set as in constantly for him and the opposite for me. So yeah, 
to to spend this time with him and have him share as much as he just has. I hope you enjoyed. Write to me. Let me know what you thought of all that. Any follow-up questions or comments? Now's your chance. My Mrs. at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. And hey, now that I've thanked David Mullen and I want to thank you, let's go to the mailbag. Yeah, I always think after I, you know, listen to the interviews back and do these wraparounds, if I should comment more on on what we both or all of us just listened to. But no, I mean, it's extraordinary to spend this kind of time with these people. So that that's pretty much the beginning and end of my my follow up is just how fortunate I feel and um and how much I'd love to hear from you with questions or comments for that guest, in this case, David Mullen. Let's go to the old mailbag, shall we? Oh, yes, the mailbag. Here we go. This one, way back in June of 2023, Justine wrote the following. Hi, Kevin. I listened to the two episodes available on my flight today to New York, finally, and I am obsessed. When they announced the show was ending, I felt like I, too, was ending. This show means a lot to me for many reasons. Moish and Shirley remind me of my own parents' dynamic, despite my parents, despite my parents think they are more Abe and Rose. Ah, despite the fact that my parents think they are more like Abe and Rose. Follow you. Second, the show uh, kept me f- preoccupied when I moved away and had no friends. I discovered the show and felt at home since I felt like it was my family on the screen as a little Jewish girl from New York. Third, I was lucky enough to work on the show in Miami during season three for a week, and it opened up the door for so many opportunities for me. Huh. Uh, I love hearing from people who worked on the show, by the way. Keep them coming, the rest of you. Uh, Justin goes on, my questions. When portraying Moish, did you pull inspiration from any source for the character? Um, I have spoken at length about um, my own uh, grandparents, the great uncles. My grandfather had a twin who... Or, or I think he was, um, I think he was a twin. I, it, 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 I was so young when they both passed, forgive me. Um, but I still have these very easily accessed memories of them yelling at each other from far ends of the um, celebratory table dining situations, whatever the celebration was, when, when all the family would get together. And these two patriarchs would uh, go at each other. And then Lou Jacoby from the movie Avalon um, was probably the greatest uh, inspiration working with him. Question two from Justine. I was wondering if I could tell you my experience uh, when it comes to season three, episode five, and what it was like for someone who's working background as it was for the best background as it was the best background experience I've had, and all that goes into it. Sending a hug, Justine. Yes, certainly, Justine. Explain away. I'd love to hear it. 
Write to me at, of course, as you know, my at gmail.com. Thank you, Justine. All right, closing up the old mailbag. Yes, indeedy. Uh, thank you, one and all. Next episode, you know what? I've decided to drop in a little teaser of my three-parter with Jane Lynch because although she and I do break down season four, episode, I want to say six, uh, and we've not even got to season four, episode one in this podcast, um, I want to I want to drop in a, a little teaser of the three parter. So the first part with me and Jane will be next week. There I've decided right here on the fly. Uh, thank you all very much, and um, yeah, tell everyone you've ever met. Thank you for your reviews and your subscribing, and um, please be kind to each other. Until next time, I'll see you in my dreams. Oh wait, ha! Huh. Sorry false uh ending it dawns on me as i listen back to all this while post-producing that as you can tell by the end of my conversation with david we did two giant zoom sessions the first of which i broke into a two two-part podcast episode we've just heard the second part of our first Zoom. We have a whole separate Zoom that I'll be bringing to you later. Yeah, that uh, was not made clear, and I apologize for that. Um, yeah, so so this two-parter is the part that ends with a couple of seasons yet to discuss. Sorry for the uh, misinformation. Um, and uh, yeah, this is another clear indication that uh, of the aging process for me. Good news, still alive. Not great news, th this stuff happens. But thank you for your patience and your support. The next two-parter with David Mullen will be a little on down the road, as they say. Until then, I'll see you in my dream. Okay, closing credits time. My Mrs. Maisel Pod was created by me, your host, Kevin Pollack, research writer, producer, Jamie Fox, and our engineer, recording, post-production producer genius is Ken Plume. My Mrs. Maisel Pod is brought to you by the fine folks at Q-Code. Q-Code. Sounds like something, doesn't it? Oh, lastly, you should know... I'm told by legal to make this crystal clear that my Mrs. Maisel pod was not sanctioned in any way, shape, or form by Amazon Prime, nor the show's creators Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino, although I feel the need to mention I did get their blessing. Okay, good. That should save me some legal fees.
Everyone needs a break from the real world. That's why we played games as kids, and that's why we should play games as adults. I'm Troy Lavalley. And I'm Joe O'Brien. And back in 2015, we started a podcast called The Glass Cannon Podcast, a show made up of comedians and actors playing a fantasy role-playing game. And now is the perfect time to start listening because we just started a brand new story. It's basically Lord of the Rings meets Game of Thrones meets X-Files. Search for The Glass Cannon Podcast on your podcast app of choice. Hey, life is hard, so come play pretend with us.